0: Hello and welcome to Tactics and Operations, the official podcast of the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. I'm your host, Major Rob Malcolm. Please note, all of the opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect those of MCTOG, MACTAF tc the U.S. Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So in this series that we've done on maneuver warfare, We've heard opinions from a lot of different sources, we've examined maneuver warfare from a couple different aspects, and I think it's, it's only right that we cap it all off by going straight to the source, talking to the man himself, and so we're very excited and honored today to have with us Mr. John Schmidt, who is probably best known for being the author of FMFM-1 Warfighting, and then the revised version, which we know today as MCDP-1. So Pleasure to be here. Good to have you with us. I won't ask to, to get the whole story of how FMFM1 came about because you've, you've told that story and there's a really great uh, episode of the Controversy and Clarity podcast where you tell that story. But I do want to ask, I, I'm always struck that the foundational doctrinal publication for the Marine Corps for 30 years now uh, was written by a captain. And I want to ask, first of all, did, did you find that unusual at the time, or was that, did that seem pretty, was that just, is that how things are generally done in Quantico?
1: No, no I, it was very unusual at the time. I think, you know, when we first heard that General Gray wanted a, a, a Keystone doctrinal manual, I think the assumption was that he was going to handpick some colonel whom he had a previous relationship with, you know, one of, one of his boys, if you will. Uh, and just bring him in to do this. That, that was, I think, the widespread expectation. It was a little surprising when he decided to sort of make the system work and actually go to the Doctrine Center to find an author. I don't, I don't know that he decided he wanted to find a captain. I think um, he you know, wanted to find an author from inside the Doctrine Center, and my boss, Colonel Bob Mastrion, who was the head of Marine Corps Doctrine, Recommended me as the best person to do it, but but it wasn't unusual for I mean General Gray liked to interact with young officers. Um, I mean so that was not surprising. But but I think it was surprising from sort of an institutional point of view that it, that that responsibility would be given to such a, a junior officer.
0: Yeah it it's, it seems it seems a little bit kind of you know I guess unique to General Gray and his personality. I also love the story of. You know him reading stormtroop tactics and going, hmm. Uh, you know, I think I would like to have this author come. You know, stand up the the school of advanced warfighting. So, you know, Bruce Goodmanson gets called to to Quantico, more or less, just on the strength of of his uh, of his manuscript again as a captain to uh, fill this, you know, incredibly important role for the Marine Corps. Yeah, it it makes me wonder. Um, you know, w- would that happen today? I d- I don't know, but. Uh, I think it speaks a lot to the culture of the Marine Corps, not just to General Gray, although to him, you know, specifically. So you, you left active duty not, a, not real long after the publication of FMFM1, is that correct?
1: That's correct. I, I left active duty in 1993. I went from Quantico to being the Marine Officer Instructor at the University of Illinois Naval ROTC program, and then I left active duty from there.
0: And what it, when you did that transition, what did you go to to do after that?
1: I didn't really have much of a plan. I, I thought I was just going to be a, a freelance writer, and I got asked by then Major General P. K. Van Riper, who was the head of C4I for the Marine Corps, to write a concept for command and control, which eventually became MCDP Six. And so I got into concept and doctrine development, which I've been doing for. Oh, close to 30 years since then.
0: Wow. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's as well known. Your, your fingerprints on MCDP six is, as again, as I say, mo- most people know you as the author of MCDP one, but provided a lot, a lot more to the Marine Corps than just that.
1: Yes. So, so PK Van Riper uh, later became CJ McSiddick. So he, his, vision was to complete the the high-level doctrinal series, which invented the MCDP nomenclature. Uh, And so warfighting had been written, campaigning had been written, tactics had been written. Uh, I wrote campaigning, the first version of campaigning. Scott Shoemaker wrote the first version of tactics. And... So, the idea was to revise both of those and then fill out the series. So, I wrote the first draft of MCDP 2 intelligence, but that was finished by somebody else. I wrote MCDP 3 expeditionary operations. Bruce Goodmanson wrote MCDP 4 logistics. I wrote MCDP 5 planning and MCDP 6 command and control. And then Scott Basford wrote what became MCDP 1 1 strategy. And then he revised campaigning and revised uh, MCDP 1-3 tactics so that's so that's where the how the whole revision thing came about
0: wow and you know i i assume you've you've gotten rich on the royalties from those uh, from those <laughs> books
1: <laughs> yeah haven't gotten a sense
0: so uh yeah that's unfortunate um so then fast forwarding a few years uh i'm assuming this happened around 1996 But you get asked to then revise FMFM1. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about?
1: Yes. So FMFM1 had been out for about five years, and we had gotten some feedback on it. I'd gotten some significant feedback from John Boyd. Uh, When I wrote FMFM1, Boyd was sick. He was fighting cancer, and so he was unavailable during the entire time that I wrote it. But when when it came out, I got a phone call from him, and he gave me, you know, and as he always did, just pages and pages of notes and um so I, I I wanted to incorporate some of those thoughts and and then we'd realize that you know certain parts of war fighting needed clarification or amplification and, and so on and so forth. so we had some ideas you know of, of ways we could revise it, and at the same time there was this plan to flesh out the entire series and so uh revising f m f from one to, uh, to become MCDP one would just seem like a logical part of that process.
0: So who first contacted you about doing the, the revision?
1: It was, um, it was general Van Riper when he okay. took over CG,
0: CG mix Okay. And other than the, the feedback from, from John Boyd, you know, was there, what, what was kind of the mandate? did you get any, anything else? Like, here's where we want to go with this or was it mostly on you? It was mostly
1: on me. It was, A mandate to sort of clarify certain things and and, and clean some stuff up and but not to make any major changes. Personally, I I wanted to incorporate some ideas about complexity. Complexity science was sort of emerging at the time, and it seemed to me that it had a lot to say about the the nature of war that and and offered us a way to explain the the complex dynamics of war that we hadn't had the language for before. So personally, I, I wanted to incorporate some of that as well. But otherwise it was, yeah, just, you know, sort of make the necessary revisions to make it clearer and and try to make it more compelling.
0: Excellent. And uh, I've never done a side-by-side comparison uh, between FMFM1 and MCDP1, but uh, I I think one of the changes that probably gets the most attention or, or, you know, catches the eye the most is the discussion of the center of gravity. And if I'm not mistaken, in FMFM1, you wrote that the critical vulnerability and the center of gravity are the same thing, uh, but in no, MCDP, no, that's no, not they're correct.
1: Not, they're not the same thing. They're, okay. they're designed, they're designed to serve the same purpose, which is mm. think, thinking, about how is it that I, how and where do I want to attack this enemy to have, to have the greatest effect on him, you know, to, mm-hmm. to support accomplishing the mission, but, but center of gravity and critical vulnerability were not the same Concept. the The invention of critical vulnerability was an explicit attempt to find an alternative to center of gravity, which I thought came with a lot of baggage, hmm. um, the term, and a lot of misunderstanding and and whatnot. And and as Boyd would love to point out, just in, in terms of a physical analogy, just got the science wrong hmm. um, when Clausewitz when Clausebus used that metaphor. Um, so so yes, I was looking for deliberately looking for an alternative center of gravity but i wasn't just putting a different name on the concept of center of gravity it's it's right, um right. it's a different concept yes
0: right yeah and and sure i i didn't mean that they are that it was just a repackaging but i i i think that fmfm1 says that the the critical vulnerability is the center of gravity but that's that's not what mcdp1 says is that correct
1: um th- there there was a an unfortunate footnote that kind of alluded that the two were the same thing, but um, that was, was not the, the original intention. Then what happened okay. with MCDP one was that the M- MSTP, which was influential at the time and had the commandant's ear insisted that center of gravity also be included. Well, that center of gravity be included and um, the compromise okay. position was to include them both. And so what had originally been invented as an alternative to center of gravity, now sort of had to be repurposed as sort of a complementary idea mm. in a, a hierarchical kind of a way that you, you attacked a critical vulnerability as a way of getting at the center uh, of gravity. Yeah. So that was, um, yes. So that, that was one of the, the biggest changes from the FMFM to the MCDP.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I, I came into the Marine Corps in 2008 and that, that is how it was explained to me and, and really you know how I, I still conceptualize it. So interesting that that was not that was not your original sort of conception of that. No, um, not at all.
1: That was a that was a, a big fight. That was probably the most contentious part of revising or fight.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, and and it hasn't been revised since then. So since 1997, all the way up to now. Uh, do you do you feel like it's time for a revision?
1: I. I certainly think that it could stand a revision. I don't believe that MCDP one was necessarily an improvement over FMFM FM one. Hmm. Um, it's, it's different. It's more sophisticated. It's at a higher level. I, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily better. I don't think you can FMFM uh, one sort of caught lightning in a bottle. And I don't, I don't know that you can expect to do that again. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah, there are some, some things about MCDP one that could be improved and some of the ideas could be updated and some of the language could be updated because language changes. It could also be ruined if, if it not done carefully. And so I would, I would just sort of caution. I'd, I'd urge caution in deciding to, to crack it open again, because, you know, the result might not necessarily be better or, and, and it might, you know, very well be worse depending on, on, um, you know, on how the process is handled. Well wow, That's so, interesting. So I, I guess ideologically or, or conceptually. Yeah. There, there are some things, you know, that, that we can improve on, but um, we need to uh, approach it very carefully. I think.
0: Yeah. That's interesting because that that's kind of very similar to the, when I've asked that question of some of the other people in part of this series, including the critics or the, the, the skeptics, of of maneuver warfare and MCDP one, I kind of expected to get well. Yeah, you know, it's it hasn't been revised in you know twenty five years, and mostly I got very a very similar answer of, well, no. I mean, we we need to be very careful and not just say that just because it's been X amount of years, we need to go back and look at it again. So it's yeah, interesting I, that there's. Consensus I mean, as an example, on
1: that. the armies had something like seven capstone, you know manuals since since you know we wrote war fighting and and I don't think they're necessarily getting any better and and some of them have been I think decidedly worse. And so yeah Mm -hmm. you've got to be and they and they kind of do it because I think the sort of the sense is well it's been a few years, it's probably time. We need to
0: I think be more careful about that. Yeah, interesting. I, I think we'll we'll probably touch on that again when we when we talk about defeat mechanisms. Uh I wanna ask though before we get there Ever since its publication, probably that you know the, the soon, before the ink was even dry, war fighting has has had its detractors and critics. Are there any specific criticisms that you've heard or read over the years that really caught your attention more than others, or 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 for that matter, any that you really find merit in? Uh, one of the first ones was
1: the "there's nothing new here" argument that that maneuver warfare is is just common sense. Um, that was one of the sort of the first criticisms that came out. And and my response to, to that would be, well, maybe, but it, it didn't seem common at the time. I mean, nobody else had thought to to put these things down in writing. I mean, so I, I, I didn't find that that argument carried a lot of weight. You, you had mentioned to me in, in sort of the lead up to this Lieutenant Colonel Drake's article about the fantasy of, of MCDP one. I think I think that that's a thoughtful criticism. Mm. Marinus Novum, who wrote a response to the to the Maneuvers papers, uh, was a was a thoughtful criticism, and both of them uh, brought up the issue of of defeat mechanism, which is at the, the center of maneuver warfare, which you alluded to. Um, so those are a couple that caught my eye that I, I thought you know had some merit and, and were worth discussing.
0: That's great, and uh, you know at, at the, the time that we're recording this. This as episode hasn't been released yet, but yeah, you know, I I did talk to Lieutenant Colonel Drake, and when we uh, we discussed some of the points he made in the fantasy of MCDP one, I think particularly the giving due consideration to how when you attack a system, the system adapts, you know, and even after a system has been disrupted or collapsed, it will reform. Uh, right, and I think that if we were to revise. War fighting at this point I think that would be maybe one area to flesh out a little bit more
1: I, I think that's very true that, that whole idea that the enemy or the society more broadly is a com- complex adaptive system which which was an idea we tried to explicitly incorporate into the revision uh, into mcdp1 that's such an important idea but I, I would I would caution against the you know thinking that it's an easy thing to to anticipate how it's going to adapt, right? You should not be surprised oh, sure. that it adapts, but, but don't think you're going to predict that adaptation with a, with a lot of precision or, or, or certitude. So I, I take his point, you know, that we, we attacked the Iraqi army and it turned into something else that gave us more trouble than the Iraqi army did. Absolutely. I'm not sure that we necessarily would have predicted what it turned into. Maybe, maybe he believes we, we could have. Um, And if we'd thought about it more carefully, maybe we could have. But at the time, it wasn't it wasn't certainly wasn't obvious to anybody. But but at least maybe, you know, just being alert to the possibility and sort of and asking yourself, you know, what's what's the what's the unintended consequence of this, which is something that I think we don't tend to do. You know, we sort of we come up with a plan and we think the plan's going to unfold and and we get surprised when it doesn't. You know, maybe um, as part of our planning process, we need to be better about you know, conducting what Gary Klein would call a pre-mortem and before Mm -hmm. the plan falls apart, try to anticipate how it might fall apart, because you should certainly expect that in some way, shape or form it's going to, and be more alert to those possibilities. So that, yes, I think that's a a great example of something that we can do better on. How, how much or how many words we would have to dedicate to that in a revision of MCDP one, I'm not, I'm not really sure because we don't, Mm -hmm. I mean, MCDP one is under 100 pages, right? I mean, it's it's designed to be consumed very quickly, and it doesn't go into anything in, in a whole lot of detail. That's, I mean, that's a topic that's worthy of its own treatment, I think, to be honest with you.
0: For sure. So assessing the impact of war fighting, looking at the history of 1989 to the present, do you feel that the Marine Corps has really adopted maneuver warfare?
1: I I think it it has in in places at times. I I don't think we have truly succeeded in in institutionalizing it across the Marine Corps at all echelons, but we've done better at other times. I mean, it's always kind of a pendulum, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we swing this way and then, and then something happens and we, Swing back the other way and go too far, and, and I, I think that that pendulum process, that sort of dampening process, is is always going on there. So I, no, I don't think we could say that we have we have succeeded in institutionalizing maneuver warfare in, in any kind of definitive way. We've been more successful in sometimes in places than in others.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. So if the Marine Corps is is still struggling and, and I, th- I think part of what you're saying is that it's never uh definitive. I mean, it's never final. Okay. We've adopted maneuver warfare. It's here. Move on. This is, this is something that we always have to be working towards, but would you say that war fighting has been a success?
1: Yes, I would, I would have to say so. I mean, the fact that it, it hasn't been significantly revised in over 30 years, you'd, you'd have to say in that sense, institutionally, it's, it's been a success. Some aspects have, have endured and had significant institutional impact. I think the, our approach to training, our approach to education certainly is very different as, as a result, not just of war fighting, but of the maneuver warfare reforms in general. So our report our approach to education is, is, I think, different and much better now. Um, I mean, we have a, a world-class professional educational system, which the Marine Corps didn't have before the maneuver warfare days. I think the culture has changed dramatically. Uh, I think the the recognition that there is a significant intellectual component to the art of war, um, or to the profession of arms, that's not something that was understood in a in a broad way in the Marine Corps. I remember when I was a second lieutenant in Second Marine Division, I arrived in Second Div just about the same time General graded as a division commander. You you worried about four things as a lieutenant. You worried about you worried about PT beer four-wheel drive and women and you could and you could sort of the the individual rankings might change but those were kind (laughs) of the four things that you were expected to to think about as a lieutenant you weren't expected to read you weren't expected to you know to try to develop yourself intellectually it's just not wasn't just not part of the culture well that's definitely changed now so yeah i think that's one of the things that, that changed significantly the manpower system I think it, we, we failed to change the manpower system to support the requirements of uh, maneuver, maneuver warfare. So in some areas, um, I think we had some success, and in some areas, we had, we had very little.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with all of that. And, you know, it's funny, as you were talking about changing the culture, and we still have a long way to go. You know, we, we talk about initiative, uh, decentralized execution, and decision-making down to the lowest level possible. Uh, so we, you know, we expect a sergeant squad leader to make decisions on the ground. But then again, you know, before we let him go out on a 96-hour liberty, he has to fill out some forms and things like that. And you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not I'm not trying to trash, you know, safety and administration and stuff. But there, there's still, you know, there, there's still some, some inconsistency there. But it's funny if you if you go on the internet and I, I don't necessarily recommend that you do but if you do you'll you you'll run into the angry internet veteran archetype that's you know it's always uh, the marines these days they're soft it's weak it's not the real core anymore and when you when you dig into some of their criticisms of why it's you know supposedly soft or weak you kind of go well yeah actually that's you're just talking about giving people some more initiative uh, not not just you know making things miserable to make them miserable, and so I, I see that as uh, yeah definitely some evidence that the culture has shifted.
1: Yeah, with respect to, to that issue in particular, you know decentralization. the the, the challenge there is that that's such a, a a fragile thing that all it takes is one senior officer to micromanage and everybody below him now gets affected by it because his immediate subordinates aren't going to feel like they can comfortably give their subordinates latitude and their subordinates are now going to feel like they can't give their subordinates a lot of latitude. And, and so it just takes one senior commander to sort of ruin the atmosphere for everybody else below them. And so it's, yeah, that that issue in particular is just really, really hard to, to, to keep alive. And, you know, now, of course, in an age where there's so much information technology, where people can see so much of what's going on everywhere. There's just this, this sort of uh, incentive to try to micromanage people and you really have to fight against it if you, you truly believe in, in maneuver warfare. And I, I think um, one of the things that Colonel Drake, one of his criticisms was that this belief in maneuver warfare is really kind of unrealistic. And I, I actually share his concerns with that. I think in today's age, we're, we're moving in the opposite direction. With all of this technology, uh, we're, we're moving toward greater centralization and, and greater micromanagement. And if the Marine Corps really wants to practice mission command or what we call mission tactics and, and war fighting, we're really rowing against the current hmm. um, because everybody else is moving in the opposite direction. There's a very strong joint culture of command by plan and command by direction. As opposed to command by influence, which is which is another word for for mission tactics, and so yeah, it's, I I just ask myself how how easy and how realistic is it for us to to really think we're truly going to do this when everybody else in in the joint community is moving in the other direction? It seems like.
0: Yes, I, I, I share those concerns, and I I think, you know, if if we don't. Even as, even if we do assess that we we are moving in the right direction, we always need to be on guard for that because, as you said, it just takes one, and it's yeah the 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 momentum almost seems like it's always against us in moving towards that. I want to shift the the topic a little bit now towards defeat mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've written in the Gazette on on defeat mechanisms under the name uh, Marinus, which I think is. I believe that particular article was, was mostly you. I know that uh, a few of you contribute to the Gazette under that name. Yes. But, um, yes, the,
1: the, the, the Maneuver's paper on defeat mechanisms was one of mine.
0: And so in that, you, you, we talked a little bit about Army Doctrine, which already includes the concept of defeat mechanisms, and it has for, for several years now. But in that doctrine, it's described as a method. Like this is a tool that the commander... The commander chooses the defeat mechanism. I just want to hear your thoughts. I mean, is that is that a correct way to think about it?
1: I don't think it is. I, I think it, it really misses the point. The defeat mechanism is not a tool. The, the defeat mechanism is something that happens in the enemy system, right? Now, you can do things that, that are intended to trigger that process to start, right? And, and you should. I mean, you should have... Um, I mean, the whole purpose in, in raising that was to sort of make the point that when you start devising a plan, when you come up with a concept of operations, you ought to give some thought to exactly how it is that you think these actions are going to trigger the defeat of the enemy. So, so you, you ought to be thinking about that. But whether it actually happens or not, the enemy gets to say. But, the, but this defeat mechanism is, as I believe, a mechanism that's actually triggered within the enemy system itself. And, um, and you can do some things to try to, to try to trigger it, but you may or may not be completely successful at it. So thinking that it's something that we control and that we do, I think is, is misguided, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, it really, I think it echoes what you were talking about just a minute ago, that we should be thinking through how the enemy system will adapt or reform, but it's, it's just a guess. I mean, it's. It can be a more or less informed guess, but it we, we can't believe that just because we said it's this, it's going to be that. Uh, right. if we if we do that, I think we're opening ourselves up to a moral shock when we find out we were wrong. Yes.
1: And this and sort of the idea that that you can you can figure that out with precision and certitude, you know, to the point where just you know, just some minimal application of combat power at precisely the right moment in time and precisely the right place is going to cause the whole enemy system to unravel, which is kind of one of the misinterpretations of, of center of gravity, you know, that if you just poke it in just the right place, everything's going to fall apart. We That's number one, probably not true. I mean, most most systems that, that persist in the world, including successful militaries, are more robust than that and don't have that kind of single point of failure. And number two where we can't know with certitude where exactly that point is and and so as you said it's it's kind of guesswork I mean it's informed guesswork but it's kind of guesswork and it's going to take some probably some hammering for a while at that point you know um, before you you start to have really significant effects so yeah you, again you have to be careful with the concept and as as we do with so much we we try to proceduralize it and we try to sort of Turn it into sort of a cookie cutter thing, which, which frankly, I, I believe is, is a mistake that the army made when they, when they took their approach to to defeat mechanisms. Right. So the army identifies four of them: destruction, dislocation, isolation, and disintegration. Right. So destruction is is wiping them out. Dislocation is a geospatial. It's, destruction is sort of focused focused on sort of physically wearing the enemy down. Right. Dislocation is a geospatial getting the enemy out of position or levering him out of position by by getting behind him or getting on his flank or something like that disintegration is specifically disrupting his c2 and isolation is kind of an odd one that has elements of you know it's it's physical isolation you know starving him out but also denying him information and 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 stuff like that so they've taken sort of this this thought this construct this this idea of of how it is that you think you're going to impose defeat on the enemy or, or trigger defeat in the enemy. And you just sort of turn it into one of these four very specific kinds of tools. And, and we've sort of mechanized and proceduralized the process just like we did with, with center of gravity. And I think made it less helpful. I think it's, it's most useful as an aid to understanding Right, And it's something that, that causes you to think about a certain part of the problem. Um, I don't think it's that useful as an explicit proceduralized analytical tool, which is what we try to do with most good things or good, good ideas, I think.
0: So this would be something that is, that is probably best thought of as part of problem framing or, or you know, design, operational design, Again, it's a hypothesis of how things will unfold, but we also have to, just like design is continuous, we have to constantly assess, reassess whether that hypothesis is is still valid or not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true, and that's a really good way of putting it, I think.
0: So if this is a concept that should be part of Marine Corps doctrine, any ideas of where it should belong?
1: So as you point out, it's, it's not in FMFM1 or MCDP1. There's no explicit description of, of defeat mechanism. It, it, the, but the defeat mechanism is described, right? It's this, mm-hmm. this idea of trying to shatter the enemy's uh, cohesion, uh, which, is, which is what Marinus described as systemic disruption. But it's, it's systemic disruption described in sort of idealized, very aspirational terms. And, and, that's, and, and that's unfortunate. That description is aspirational, as I said, and it, it's not sort of accepting that there could be different different levels of disruption short of complete collapse of the enemy system. And I think that's that's confused a lot of people, and that's one of one of uh, Colonel Drake's criticisms as well, uh, which is why I prefer the term systemic disruption to system collapse or you know shattering. Is a sort of a very powerful word that implies sort of complete and utter dismantling, right? A, tearing apart, and I think that has misled some people, which is why when I wrote that maneuvers paper, I, I identified disruption rather than you know complete collapses as the defeat mechanism, because it may be something less than complete. Mm. Very likely will be something less than complete collapse. I think those examples where enemies or armies have just completely collapsed are, are really fairly rare, yep. and um, usually what you get is, is some sort of degradation less than that.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I think of you know I think you you talk in the in the article about there's there's almost like little d defeat and big d defeat. You know, it is does defeat just mean that this particular unit or echelon is unable to accomplish its current mission, or does it mean that it's unable to accomplish any mission going forward?
1: Right. So part so part of the design process, part of that early formulation of a plan has to involve, well, what do we mean by defeat in this instance? Is it the complete route of the enemy or is it just forcing him to fall back from this position to his next position, right? And forcing him to, to give up some terrain. You have to decide what exactly defeat means and what, what you're going after. And that has to be based on an assessment of what's realistic, hmm. right? I mean, yes. Yeah, so we want to route the enemy, but if we haven't created the conditions to allow us to do that, then it's, uh, you know, then it's it's reckless to try. You know, so you you have to first of all understand, you know, what's reasonable, and 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 then decide what you know what you're actually going to try to do, and then you have to decide, all right, what what are the things that I'm going to do that I think it, will bring that about, and mm-hmm. and how is it that I think that they're actually going to bring it about?
0: Agreed. So this this concept is, I think, uh, the technical term is kind of squishy, and as you point out, we, we kind of tend to shy away from that in doctrine we'd really like to be more prescriptive and this is this is what this thing is and this is how to do it I think that the marine Corps of all the services is is better about that I mean as evidenced by the mcdp series which are you know not not what to do not how to do it but more how we should think about things so I, I look forward to seeing this concept introduced to marine Corps doctrine and I just I hope we stay away from something that's a little bit more you know lockstep and procedural, and recognize that this is this is more of a, a thought process thing that helps us you know, more effectively employ our combat power rather than a procedure that results in some sort of output.
1: But that's that's precisely one of the things that warfighting has been
0: criticized for is that it's it's very philosophical it's very
1: abstract. Some people have said it, it's not how to, and 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 so you know the sort of like the common conception of doctrine is that it's how to, it's it's best practices, and that's not at all what war fighting is, and that's been hard for for some people because some people want to be told, all right, just tell me what to do, <laughs> right? Don't give me this philosophical stuff. Don't give me these concepts. Just tell me you know what you want me to do, and and so that that has been sort of an ongoing debate about about the the MCDP series, you know, whether they are appropriately detailed and pragmatic or, or whether they are, are, are too philosophical. Now, I will say that as I was you know listening to General Gray talk about what he wanted and he never talked about the book when he gave guidance, he, he just sort of talked about his philosophy and I, it became clear to me that that's, that that's what he wanted. He wanted to change the philosophy. And in fact, the, the language he uses in the forward is, is this is a philosophy for action. So if that's not doctrine for some people, OK, it was. But it wasn't meant to be it was it was meant to be more philosophical. And, and, and so what you're describing is something that's more conceptual and philosophical rather than rather than how to. And so I absolutely agree with that. Bruce Goodmanson, by the way, when Warfighting first came out, he, he called it he called it the undoctrine because it was <laughs> it was very different from any doctrinal manual that that we'd seen. And in fact, uh, if I can tell a little sea story, after I got chosen to write the manual, General Gray came down to Quantico uh, to give some guidance. And I was expected to brief him on, you know, an outline of, of the manual. And there, were, there was no PowerPoint then. So I was just briefing from notes that I'd made. And, and um, so it's me briefing General Gray with the room, the, the boardroom at, at Barrett Hall, just sort of filled with colonels and a few generals and, and whatnot, sort of sitting around the periphery and me and General Grace sitting at the table. And I I started out by saying, and, and so chapter one will start out with a discussion of the principles of war. Because every every keystone doctrinal manual that you read starts out with the principles of war. I mean, the principles of war are kind of sacrosanct. You have to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, and so chapter one will start with a discussion of the principles of war. And he goes, well, which principles are those? And I was I was taken aback. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to answer. I'm thinking, what how is it possible that the commandant of the Marine Corps doesn't know what the principles of war are so I just I kind of sputter and I said you know sir, the principles of war and he goes well, which principles of war and again I'm like oh my gosh this is surreal I you know I didn't know how to answer and finally I said moose must sir you've heard of you you've heard of moose must and he, he got that sort of lopsided grin on his face with, you know which he always did and he goes oh those principles of war and it was like he had punched me in the gut because I realized, oh, my God, he's he's what he's saying to me is what's so sacrosanct about nine things that J.F.C. Fuller came up with in 1921. Right. You know, it's 70 years later. Can't we do any better than that? And I and afterwards I went back to my cubicle and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have been thinking about this thing too conventionally. He wants something radically different uh, from any any doctrinal manual that we've that we've seen before and it caused me to sort of reframe to use your words to sort of reframe the entire project and realize that uh, you know because if if the principles of war are on the table then everything's on the table nothing is safe right and i i said i I gotta go back and start from scratch and reconceive this, this and reframe this whole thing because he's looking for something more revolutionary than that so yes but that's but that's how gray operated he didn't he didn't give explicit guidance saying, I don't want you to use the principles of war. He he sort of operated in parables that way. Right. And sort of gave you this indirect guidance. He took an indirect approach. But it, but he got his message across. He, 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 it was very clear to me that I needed to to change my my approach to this thing because he was looking for something different. And, and, but to get back to the, my original point, what he was looking for was was, in fact, something more philosophical than than how to.
0: Wow. That's, that's a, thank you for sharing that story. That's fantastic. And I, you know, I hear stories like that and I just, I wish I could have, uh, wish I could have been in the room for that. So as we, as we kind of bring this conversation to a close, what are you working on right now? Is, is there anything you want to share that's coming soon?
1: Well, so while I was also working on Marine Corps Doctrine, I got involved in, in joint concepts. So I, I did write a couple of versions of the capstone concept for joint operations. 2009 version for Admiral Mullen and the 2012 version for for general Dempsey and I have I have been working with um, the joint staff j7 on some follow-on stuff it has, hasn't come out yet and, I, and I, I, I'm not sure when it will um, but so I've been involved in that stuff o- over the years and, and continue to do that periodically not on a, on a regular basis the other the other big thing that um, I spend a lot of time on is trying to train decision-making right and teach people to be better decision-makers under uncertainty time pressure danger you know conditions of vague and 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 competing goals and and those sorts of things and so i i work with dr gary klein the inventor of the recognition prime decision model to try to develop training programs for military for law enforcement for firefighters for child protective services um, you know, variety of different fields. Any kind of decision maker who has to deal with uncertainty and time pressure and danger and fog and friction and, and and that kind of stuff, trying to develop scenario-based experiential training programs to help them become better decision makers. And all of it, all of it really stems from the tactical tactical decision games, the TDGs that we first started implementing in the Marine Corps in 1990 and have been doing ever uh, doing ever since and that's that was one of the outgrowths of maneuver warfare by the way right so this you, you had this war fighting manual that was very philosophical and it was hard for some people a lot of people frankly to to figure out okay great i love the concepts i love critical vulnerability mission tactics commanders intent main effort and you know, all of these things but what is it what does maneuver warfare look like when you actually practice it that was that was hard for some people hard for a lot of people and um, still is and i struggled with that myself and i and i I just realized there's something missing here there's there's got to be some way to make this more concrete for people and and the answer was tactical decision games to create actual scenarios and say what would you do in this scenario and that allowed us to sort of say well maneuver warfare would look like this in this case Um, and so i don't think I don't think people appreciate the importance of, of tactical decision games to the development of an understanding of maneuver warfare in the Marine Corps. But but they were, I believe, essential. They were the other side of the coin. They were the they were the practical and concrete complement to the concepts and, and, and theory that that we found in in war fighting. Uh, and so that point of departure, I, I carried through and tried to apply it to other domains as well. In, in my other work. So I spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time doing that.
0: Yeah. So what, what we're trying to do here at McTog, I mean, that that's right up our alley, what you're talking about, the experiential learning with our flagship advanced maneuver warfare course, you know, training battalion, regimental operations, and intelligence professionals, the, the primary vehicles of learning are tactical decision games and Creek spiels. They're so yeah.
1: important. Right? I mean, problem-based Absolutely. learning is, is so powerful. And we're, we're just, you know, we're just now beginning to appreciate how powerful it is.
0: Absolutely. And uh, for listeners, uh, if, if you, if you didn't catch that, if you've not read Gary Klein's sources of power, highly recommend you do that. Um, Absolutely. Can I ask, how did you and Klein come to, to start working together?
1: Shortly after I got out of the Marine Corps, I was, General Van Riper approached me about writing in this concept for command and control and somehow somebody heard about it and dr greg foster who was a professor at uh, national defense university put out an anthology series on on the science of command and control and he was putting out volume three and i I was asked if i you know can write a a condensed version of that concept to include in in that anthology and so i did and about this time, this was not long after Gary Klein had come up with his RPD. And he also had an article in the anthology. And Dr. Foster had sent the galley proofs out to all of us so we could see the other articles that were going to be appearing with ours. And and I read them and I was, just, I had never heard of Dr. Klein at that point, but I was, I read his article on the RPD and I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. I mean, this is, You know, we were as a lieutenant. Of course, I was taught the military decision-making process, which is a which is a version of rational choice theory, right? And and his RPD was a rebuttal of of rational choice theory. And I read it. I mean, and I thought, oh man, God, this guy gets it. This guy's exact describing exactly what I do when when I make a decision under time pressure and stress and uncertainty. And so I just happened to be talking to Foster on the phone one day about about. You know the, the the anthology coming out, and I said, I I yeah I read the other ones, and I really liked the article by Klein. And he goes, well, it just so happens that Gary Klein is sitting here in my office. Um, he <laughs> just c- come to NDU for for a visit, and so he put him on the phone, and that's how the two of us met, and uh, we agreed to to get together. And then he asked me if he was doing a project for the Marine Corps. And he sort of he needed a subject matter expert. and He said, would you mind, you know, consulting on this project? And I said, sure. And um, so we have been working together on and off for 30 years since then.
0: Oh, that's incredible. All right. So I, we're, we're coming to the, the end of our, our time here. Um, I just I want to thank you for. What you've done, you know, not only in the past with the FMFM1 and the other MCDPs, but also what you're continuing to do, as you just described it, uh, it's been so good to get to get to actually talk to, you know, the, the, the man behind our, our capstone doctrine. Last question, uh, besides, you know, obviously the pages of the Marine Corps Gazette, to which, as we've discussed, you're still a frequent contributor are there any other resources that you could recommend to our leaders and listeners to go learn more about what we've discussed here?
1: Sure. I, I still believe that, I mean, complexity is such an important idea, and, and warfare is obviously complex. So, you know, Bertolt General Systems Theory is extremely uh, important stuff. Uh, the, the books that really sort of influenced me from that time was Mitch Waldrop's complexity, which is a description of sort of the, the creation of the Santa Fe Institute, which is dedicated to the study of complex adaptive systems. Uh, so M- Waldrop's complexity, Kevin Kelly's out of control, really influenced my thoughts on command and control for the future and and that kind of stuff. So I'd encourage people to go there. I'm, I'm turning around looking at my bookshelf. There's always new translations of sunza coming out and i, I hmm. buy every single one that that i think it's published because each one of them has a slightly different twist i mean it, it, i think it's pretty obvious to anybody who's read warfighting that sunza's the, the art of war is is one of the, the key sources i would say it's sunza's the art of war Clausewitz's uh, on war and then john boyd's patterns of conflict briefing slides like i said i didn't have the chance to talk to him but by the time i wrote warfighting i'd Attended several of his his briefings, and I had access to his slides. So those were sort of the three primary sources that I used. But anyway, I mean, I I go back to I go back to Sunza on a on a regular basis, and every time a new translation comes out, I uh, I get that and I read it just to see what I can get out of it. So you you can't go wrong with with the classics.
0: Anything on uh, on defeat mechanisms that uh, our listeners could get into besides uh, you know the doctrine,
1: but. There, there is the, um, there's a monograph that I cite in the maneuvers paper on it, which, um, is, I think that's sort of the definitive treatment. Yeah. So I, I recommend that.
0: Okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to tactics and operations. As part of Marine Air Ground Task Force Training Command, Marine Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms, MCTOG supports the Marine Corps ground combat element and the Fleet Marine Force as a whole through the delivery of advanced individual and collective training. If you would like to know more about the great things going on at MCTOG, you can find us on social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. Until next time.